and welcome to episode 53 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, what's up, man? You know what's funny is I'm having people now ask me when they see me on MitGo, like, is this the one and only Shane Beeps? I'm like, yeah, sure is. Because it's just, you've, you've branded me. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Can I be honest with you? Can I make a confession? Yeah. I go crazy when you say MitGo. <laughs> it's Magic Online. It's MTGO. MitGo isn't a word. I got another confession. MitGo is, is what they used to call it. And MitGo is the origin of Mount Gox as well. Right. And we know what happened to Mount Gox. Exactly. Uh-oh. We don't talk about that in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Also with us here in Chicago, the godfather, Dave Harburger. Uh, Santa Forsyth came a little early this year, huh? Am I right? Man, Dave, you're always doing a little bit of spoilers. <laughs> Do you workshop these before you bring them on? Yes. No. Last but not least, Chicagoland's only free-range goblin rancher, Zach Culhan. It's USCA beef, the Committee of Agriculture. Are they pasture-raised? Uh, they're free-range. They eat a lot of trash. <laughs> they, that means they only have two cubic feet of space, Zach. Yeah, well, do they kind of no. have a door that they are allowed to go out if they want to, but they are not forced to go out it? Listen, I would never make someone leave an enclosed area, right? Like, that wouldn't be safe. But they always have to be attacking. Listen, I don't want... My lawyer told me not to answer any more questions, so... On this week's episode, we're starting with a breakdown of the unelkable bands and pioneer that took place today... Then in the dive down, we're back on that old covered wagon trail, another Pioneer episode. With the format approaching its two-month birth anniversary, we decided that now would be a great time to take stock of the meta as it exists and share some constructive observations we had with our listeners. Give them some thoughts to keep in mind when building a new deck, playing against a new deck, or just even thinking about a new deck. Finally, in the wind down, we answer some listener questions about Magic's newest format. Brawl? That's right. <laughs> it's actually that, that MMO that they announced a couple of days ago. Oh, yeah. I'm going to grind that. Magic Legends. We have some preview drops from that game. So you're going to see what you're going to get when you get like an uncommon enemy defeated. We do not have preview drops. We don't have any preview drops. Zach. We do have some housekeeping, though. Thank you to Stepon and Ben M for joining the Patreon. Also, thank you to Ben M for leaving a review on Apple iTunes. Now, this guy's double dipping. You double dip, Ben M. And we appreciate it. As always, you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down or using mana traders with coupon code the dive down, all one word. Get 15% off your first three months of magic online rental service. Support the podcast while you're at it. Get better at magic. Help out your favorite pod. It's win-win. Yeah, another week went by. I played a bunch of leagues, which was rare for me. And I was just, thank you, Traders, for existing. I don't have to like, I don't have to like sell eight of these cards to get eight different cards to like test different builds of mono red. Ugh, essential. Yeah. What if I owned Okos right now? Huh? Maybe you can dust them for wild cards. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Mana Traders owns all those Okos right now. Maybe we should send them a holiday basket or something as condolences. Some good venison. Yeah. 
I think Armando Traders is doing okay with or without the Yokos. <laughs> yeah, I think they're okay. All right, let's pass it off to Shane, who is at, at home. Shane's at home today. Yeah, so today, as many Mondays in the past few months, we got some Pioneer bands. And so this afternoon, we have two potentially eagerly awaited announcements in Oko Thief of Crowns and Nexus of Fate being banned in Pioneer. So that's some big news. Those are some powerful cards. Do we all want to go around and give our one word impression of these bands? I'll start juicy. Spicy. Slimy. Essential. <sighs> oh, Dave, hit it out Thanks, of the park Dad. as usual. Wow. I'd buy that cologne. So first things first. Okay, we got some good things, right? So Watsi states the metagame is approaching a better balance of top decks that have both favorable and unfavorable matchups. So that's a good thing. That's what you want in many of your formats, I imagine. But they stated there were two outliers. So we had the Simic Food Ramp Deck and Simic Nexus. Weirdly, both are Simic. So... The primary issue here is that the Simic Food Devotion ramp deck was about 60%, winning about 60% of its non-mirror games on Magic Online, and had earned more than twice as many 5-0 trophies as any other archetype. So that's a combination of both power and popularity, but it does not bode well. And the quote from Watsi was, it had favorable matchups against most of the other top decks and no strongly unfavorable matchups. That is not... A healthy deck. This so closely mirrors the language used for banning Hogak. About double the highest in rate, like very few unfavored matchups. It's just, I go, hey, this this deck is pretty similar and that is just not, like it, it's so oppressive. Yeah, I've kind of said this a number of times in the past, but I'm pretty sure that if a deck is sitting at about high 50% win rate uh, with the data that Wizards of the Coast has, they kind of want it gone as soon as possible. Why is that number a problem? I don't really know. I, I I have found when I've looked at games that have bigger access to data, like Hearthstone has a lot of uh, crowdsourced data, like thousands and thousands and thousands of games, right? It's all digital, right? Easier to track. It's all digital, but and also like the app and the way the app works has like logs that allow people to sort of submit data to third parties. And when you look at the majority of the Hearthstone formats, at least when I was playing like a couple of years ago, you saw gaps of about like 45 to 55 percent right and i think those were kind of established formats where things were being nerfed or banned or changed or anything like that and i think that that is just kind of like a healthy range a healthy natural range for metagames and card games to exist in because when you combine that with player skill plus the natural variability that's built into a game like magic you're going to get opportunities for the good players to consistently win more often than they lose and give players who are perhaps developing their skills more opportunities to get those wins and feel like they're advancing and getting better. Is this sort of tying into part of the entire part of magic, which is that like the randomness is part of the game and the RNG isn't like a a bug. It's a feature because like I'm saying the, the less of the higher you go past 50%, the more skills mattering or to a degree, right? So like if a deck is really has a really high win rate, I think it's it gets to a point where the more skilled player is probably winning more of the time then more consistently, and that's bad for the game. Like you can try to say, I think there has to be like a closer to like 50, like 55, 45 win rates, like fair and good, right? You shouldn't win 60% of your games all the time. Well, I think they're probably okay with certain players winning 50% of the, or 60% of their games. What they don't want is to have people who are on a certain deck to have that advantage off the 
box no matter what. So keep in mind that when we see these aggregate win percentages, it includes both good players and bad players. Yeah, like and me. And so, yeah, like Shane playing playing Simic, Simic Food Ramp or whatever the dumb name that had. He played against me in a bar. Yeah. But the the fact is that if the deck does too much of the work on its own, then all the good players will figure that out and pick it up. And so their gap will get even bigger. I don't think, again, none of us are advocating for this, for an idea that like we want skilled players to be punished for being skilled. (laughs) I didn't say that. You said that. I guess that what is going on here is that they're trying to keep this tolerance of decks can have a 45 to 55% win percentage kind of on their own. And what you do with them beyond that is on their, is kind of, um, on you. I also think that they want decks to have good and bad matchups. And so they said that there's no strongly unfavorable matchups for this deck. So win percentage aside, the fact that there were no, you know, comers to the throne here and saying like, you know, I can come and beat some food devotion you know, pretty regularly. That's also not a good sign. Well, I was saying that after beating them in one match. Well, I think that you probably had something there, Stan. I think you should have just kept playing that and shown Watsi what's up. <laughs> All right, but we got to move on to Simic Nexus because that had the second highest win rate, right? However, Simic Food was one of the only unfavorable matchups among the popular decks. So after they nerfed Simic Ramp, they anticipated Nexus to rise to even higher prominence. And they also acknowledged the way that Nexus sort of actually works by stating the potential for Nexus of Fate decks leading to frustrating play patterns and long matches is an additional factor in this decision. Potential? Yeah, yeah, potential for Nexus of Fate decks. And Zach, you were you were talking about this kind of in our ban episode. Yeah, absolutely. And this, I think, relates again to the egg defense, as I often use and mention when I talk about bans, where a card doesn't have to be quote-unquote too good. It can just make play so unfun and so miserable that, like, in addition to usually winning the game, it also is unfun to play with and, like, against. So I think this falls into that a little bit. And, like, Nexus of Fate has been a problem everywhere, right? Like, wasn't it banned in Arena or something to that effect? It's just, it's not a very fun card. Nexus of Fate was banned in best of one standard on Arena. God, sure, okay. <laughs> because everybody was just playing it. I mean, we'll get to Oko in a second, but since we're on Nexus, like, it's it's almost certainly the right decision. Right, because there's 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 all there's all sorts of issues with Nexus, and only some of those issues are the power level, because you know we have the obviously it's, it's very good because of the win rates that we're seeing, but in paper you have things like it's only in foil, so you have issues and concerns about potentially marked cards. You have uncertainty about whether or not you're supposed to be using proxies, and Nexus like being foil, it's exactly the kind of card that you can't have be easy to manipulate in your deck <laughs> because you need to have it close to the top but it makes you shuffle your deck so yeah, it's just put it back into your deck and then cut your deck and so sometimes <laughs> you're gonna cut to the card that's foil listen who knows how it's gonna end up back on top listen i'm not a magician yeah as much as it seems like there are no magicians in magic only planeswalkers that's right and um you know the the combo is non-deterministic so it's it's pretty time consuming. It's absurd to play against. Like you could sometimes, most of the time you're going to lose. Sometimes you aren't. Like you know, you could walk away for five minutes. You could make a sandwich and come back, and they might still be going on. Like literally. Um, but so I think I think overall Nexus pretty good to go. Yeah, I don't even care if it was a good deck or not. It should just it's not a good card. I'm sorry. Were you guys experiencing a lot of Nexus matchups in your Pioneer leagues? I was not. 
I, I haven't. So the first couple of weeks that Pioneer was out, I played against Nexus quite a bit. And then I haven't seen it for a couple of weeks in any of the, the games that I played. But I definitely felt the frustration multiple times where, you know, we would get to turn six and then I would sit there for 10 minutes while my opponent just did stuff. Yeah, I've seen it once or twice, but you know, I, I watch a lot of streamers in the background, and when they're facing Nexus decks, I'm just I'm watching it, just like this is silly. And and I think many of us have played it against it even in standard, like on Arena, and that was ridiculous. And that's in a digital form. I think Wilderness Reclamation is a problematic card as well. I guess I'll just say that here instead of saving that for later. I real quick, I think it needs to be banned for the same reason that Bridge from Below is banned, and that it doesn't enable anything good or fun to happen. Like no one is using this card for any sort of it's, it enables nonsense and enables very, very silly things. I don't think it has a, a good place in Magic. Yeah, I think we'll see if they can make a Wilderness Reclamation deck that's fair or at least like interesting but not busted. Like, is the pay, like maybe maybe it has super high payoffs but low consistency, and that's kind of something that we've seen exist in the past with many type of decks. So I'm curious to see what happens with Reclamation. So let's move on to Oko, right? So Watsi's statement on Oko was that it stands out as a powerful threat that's difficult to answer, you don't say, and shores up <laughs> many natural weaknesses of ramp decks. In addition, Oko Thief of Crowns appears in several of the other strongest decks. I'm guessing they're just referring to kind of like uh, the Simic midrange um, and would likely contribute, continue to contribute to metagame balance problems long term. Therefore, we are betting Oko Thief of Crowns. So what did Oko do to us? Why was it so problematic, y'all? Well, it's pretty hard to remove when it's on the board. That seems pretty like a hard. problem. Very, very hard. Stan, why doesn't Fry kill it? They wanted to push Simic Planeswalker, Zach. They want you to do three for one yourself. Yeah. The problem with Oko is that it has too many pluses, not enough minuses. Oh. Ooh. Is that a little bit of a double entendre? I, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has that incredible loyalty. Yeah. It also gains life for no cost and gets you an extra permanent for no cost and can be ramped into turn two with goose and can remove problematic permanence. Yeah. And it, and then it can remove the permanence in like these ways that like are really punishing. It's just like obliterating a text box. Like, I mean, they, it just has, it has, it has, it has value on defense and offense. Like I just, I feel like there's honestly no weaknesses to Oko. Besides that, like it isn't colorless, and then like a color a color hoser hits it. I remember Shane when you and I were playing in the bar while you were in town, and you had an Oko out, and I had like rekindling Phoenix in hand, and playing creatures into Oko sucks. Yeah, and it's not even like it's not even like playing a creature into a Liliana because even if you have three creatures on the board versus an Oko, you know one can just take out the most powerful one that actually does something. So with a Liliana Edict, you're like, okay, well, I'll sacrifice like this Noble Hierarch. I'll fetch a Dryad Arbor. Nice. Well, also, it's a minus. Yeah, and it's a minus. Yes, it, put, it puts her it puts her Liliana at one. Okay, I, we get it. He's He was too good, and now he's gone. Now he's gone! Yeah, they, they messed up. He's gone. Good to go. I'm really excited to see what's going to happen in the near future. I'm, I'm so glad I just finished my play set of Breeding Pools. It's going to be great. I mean, I think Simic's still pretty rad. I agree with Shane there. I, so I played against Simic last night in doing Pioneer testing, and they beat me game two without ever drawing Oko just by playing valuable creatures, Wicked Wolves, bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, it's still a good shell. Hydroid Crisis. Like, as long as you can cast Hydroid Crisis, I think you're going to be okay. Hydroid Crisis is my favorite. Remember that video game where you, like, put your foot on the pedal and move through? Yes, they had it at the mall near me. Yeah, Hydroid Crisis. 
All right, so we'll get our next update, uh, ban update for Pioneer uh, Monday, January 6th. We get a little bit of a holiday reprieve, see what's going on in the format. So be sure to grind all those things that Oko has been keeping down and let us know what's going on. Revisit things next year. Yeah, I hope M2GO is live on Christmas Day because as a Jewish person, that is the most boring day of the year for me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm excited to play some Magic Online. You know, possibly anybody in your life that would celebrate that holiday. I'm going to want you to be a part of it. As a as a person who celebrates <laughs> Christmas secularly, it's also the most boring day of the year for, you know, <laughs> for us, too. So I, I don't worry about it. I might be on there with you. So for the future of Pioneer, we've been knocking out the short list here of cards that I think everybody has been concerned about. They've been moving swiftly through them. What's left on the watch list for you all now? I will throw a card out there. Dig Through Time is on the, the watch list for me still. I don't think we have to explain it a bunch, but that's just what's still on the watch list for me. Shane, what's on the watch list for you still? Anything? Whew. Honestly, those are the two big ones. Um, I'm curious to see if Reclamation still has a home like Zach's concerned about. Nothing else has seemed super problematic to me. Uh, remains to be seen. Oh, oh, hold on. Let's, let's, let's roll this back a little bit. I do think, I do think that um, the Lotus Field... I, I think that's problematic. Um, I think that the fact that it's not legendary is really bad. The deck can go off extremely quickly. I was playing tons of mono red this week and lost to it like twice, even with uh, a speedy mono red hand. It's just, it's, it's extremely good at what it does. It has hexproof, by the way. That's yeah. that's the real problem with that card. I mean, no, I think the legendary is because you can copy it with Espion Stage. That's an issue. I, uh, I, I faced it off too, and I, I cast an Alpine Moon and problem solved. Can't hexproof that. That's for Being sure. The board. I like it. In fact, I really loved holding up my Alpine Moon for after they cast the Lotus Field because it comes in tapped. They go down on mana, then you Alpine Moon them, and they are pretty much held back for like a few turns. So if you are on mono red and you're concerned you're not going fast enough, maybe you're just not playing the right land hate in your board. When you held it up, how high off the ground was it? A couple feet, baby. Poof. Playing, okay. land, playing like hate against a single deck is poopy. All right. Anyway, I I just want the list. So we got Dig Through Time. We got Wilderness Reclamation. We got Lotus Field. Stan, anything on your mind? Teferi Time Reveler. Okay. I think that's a great one to put on the list as well. A lot of people hate that card. Uh, I guess we'll see what happens because I do think that that's one of those cards that's more like, I really don't like playing against it than it is something that's super abusive or in one of the best decks. But we'll see what happens from here. Very quick thought experiment. We don't have to an- we don't have to answer it. I want to say it out there. Maybe have people think about it. If a Blood Moon effect existed in Pioneer right now, do you think that would be on the short list for a ban list? Food for thought. Anyway, <laughs> with that in mind, <laughs> I love that thought experiment. You know you don't. Going down this way, there was an earlier band announcement today before we got the fireworks of this afternoon's Pioneer a band announcement where Wizards of the Coast had some interesting things to say about their scheduled multi-format ban announcements from now on. The first thing was, hey, today they didn't ban anything and anything other than Pioneer. Yeah, so we still get Oko, still get Mox Opal, Urza. Um, But, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but the really weird thing that they said was that from now on, they're no longer going to be making a commitment in advance to when the next banned and restricted update will be. So what that means is they say they expect changes to come at a similar pace. They will always announce changes on Mondays, but they will be giving themselves flexibility to announce things when it makes sense to them to do it. 
So is expecting bands to come in as a, at a similar pace to now a good thing? Because the pace right now is aggressive. I think in their mind, they mean every six weeks or so. Like when they say at the pace, I don't think they mean we're going to ban cards at the same rate because I can't imagine anyone at Wizards of the Coast looks at all the cards they've had to ban this year and is happy about that. <laughs> Regardless of what they say about yeah, that, it was hoping. intentional for them to raise the power level of standard and also do some wild stuff in Modern Horizons. But they can't be happy with all the cards that they've banned. But I just think that they're, they mean we might do five weeks between a ban and then we might do four weeks and then we'll do eight weeks. They're just trying to give themselves the, the ability to make announcements when it makes the most sense for given formats, I think. But what does everybody else think about that stuff? So we've seen Wizards have to make uh, emergency bans before with Felder Goddardian or the Embercle, the 13 drop from Innistrad. And it doesn't look good. And like it, it makes it seem like it's a bad look for the company or a bad look for the team, right? To have a ban announcement and then shortly after go, oops, by the way, we missed this one. And like, it's just, it's not a good interaction across the board. So when you have something like this, it's no longer oopsies, we missed it. It's when we notice it and we're ready, we're going to do it. So like every ban is an emergency ban when you can think about it this way. I mean, I don't think it'll be emergency banning in the sense that they're all urgently and like, uh oh, out the gate. I think we'll still have long periods where they're seeing if it's okay. But I, I personally don't mind this as much. I generally agree that I don't mind this as much. I think the lead up and anticipation that happens every six weeks or so when the new BNR is coming up leads to just distracting discourse in the MTG community. For sure. And I think when people spend so much time speculating on what can go or what should go, I don't think that's always a net positive to the conversation or to innovations across formats. But there's the risk that now just most Mondays, like if a deck was two out of the top eight in a, in a MC or a GP, that people are going to be saying, well, maybe maybe Wasi's going to do something on Monday. People always say that kind of stuff, though. Like the, until we see more bans or like until we see that happen, I'm not going to worry about it. I think that the the dates that. Uh, scheduled dates made that discourse get wider than just normal chatter that happens after every event personally. I also think that there's like a financial component that comes with the scheduled banned and restricted dates that was kind of annoying where you would see these kind of price spikes and cards that people think are going to get unbanned in modern or things like that. So I, I mean, you know, those, those swings went on with Stoneforge Mystic for, I don't know, 18 months before the card was actually unbanned. Jace, it happened with a bunch of times. So I think that there's a, a chance that in that aspect, it'll actually help uh, reduce some of the volatility and financials, but we'll see. Honestly, the, actual dates at which they choose to ban things is much less important to me than reducing the the frequency of all of this and i'm i'm hoping that that will be the case in the coming year or two based on what we read from the play design team i'm there's some concerns especially in standard for kind of the pushes that were made to standard power level but i think let's uh let's just wait and see and not be overly negative out of the gate one of the things they said in the pioneer announcement on monday afternoon was that they're going to do at least one more monday separate pioneer ban and restricted announcement right but beyond probably january or early january they intend to roll it into the normal bnr cadence so when that happens and pioneer quote unquote settles down 
I think the first ban under this new policy could come with a really interesting article or insight about how they're looking at the format health in this new system. Mm. Stan, now now that you mentioned that, that actually makes me more concerned about the future of pioneer bands than not, because you know we were all under the impression that maybe after you know come January, we, pioneer would be on the standard six six plus week schedule of BNR. People could start investing in a DEX and play testing them. And now we're still essentially going to be operating under the same schedule. Any Monday, a Pioneer card could be taken off from under people. I mean, but can't a modern card then as well? Like if we're moving to that schedule, like magic is inherently a little bit dangerous or risky to get involved in. And like, if they're still saying they're not going to ban at like random or at will, that's going to be sort of you know, as at this pace in general, I don't think we're going to wake up to like the format changing every week or something. Totally. And I think what I'm hearing is a little bit of anxiety that we're going to see frequent changes or unexpected changes. But I think, or maybe not frequent changes, but rather unexpected changes. I think after like a month or two of nothing happening, we're probably going to get used to a status quo where bans happen, hopefully infrequently, rather than having tense Mondays every week. Yeah, I mean, I take them at their at their face value when they say we expect changes to come at a similar pace, which I think to them what does means. That mean? <laughs> I think what that means to them is every six ish weeks, like they've been doing now, where it's kind of like we'll do a band announcement right after a set comes out, we'll do another one about a month and a half after the set comes out, and then we'll that's that's kind of what they've been doing with Pioneer aside. I just don't see what this gets them. <laughs> it gets them it gets them the ability to not have a grand prix not have to do an emergency ban to ban a card for, out of a bad standard metagame 2 weeks before a standard grand prix when the next standard when the next band announcement is the day after the grand prix was going to happen. Yeah, so you think it's probably like standards? I I think it's everything. Like they could look at, you could look at every format that way, but I think that basically they don't want to be stuck with going like, well, we know that this Grand Prix is going to be terrible because the metagame in this event is terrible, but the band uh, announcement isn't until the day after the Grand Prix is finished, so we can't do anything without doing an emergency ban. So now what they're going to do is just be like two weeks before it, X. Okay. That's my thought. Okay, last question before we move out of the breakdown. Everybody okay with nothing getting banned in modern? No. No. Yeah. <gasps> that was legitimately surprising to me. Zach, where are you at? I hate Oko. I hate Oko so much. Okay. Um, they're easier to remove in modern than Pioneer, I guess, if that's like worth anything. You have Bolt and other removal that across the board, but I just don't like them. I don't think you can ignore them the way you can with some other walkers when you try to race or fight and you have to deal with them. And they are, like, like we mentioned earlier in our Ode to the Elk, how good they are. So I don't like that I want them gone. Yeah, the Oko banning strategy feels kind of like a slow bleed thing. Like, hey, the writing's on the wall. You can get out now if you want, or you can keep holding on to them if you're thinking you're going to play with them. So I, it's like, I don't think it's for positive play experiences. I think it's for not just saying, like, we're unprinting Oko. Is, that, is this captain, you, going to go down with this ship, Oko? Interesting. Uh, I th- I kind of feel like it's going to stay for a while in God, modern. I, I guess we'll see. I think but so, too. I, I feel like it's going to be there. I think the counter spells are so much better in modern. There's free counter magic now that you can use to deal with it. I also don't think Oko is the problem. 
in the format. I think Oko only doing one thing or turn is actually not slow, but at the modern power level. I think if we're going to identify problematic cards in the format, it's Urza and maybe Opal, but especially Urza. I think it's Mox, especially Mox Opal. That's but that's me. I, I don't just like how Oko can hit artifacts as well as creatures, and I feel like it's really invalidated my mono red prison strategy. So I have a vendetta. I need vengeance for what I did to me and my family of cards. Guess I won't be buying the Chalice of the Voids anytime soon, huh? No. Did you guys see the modern challenge results? Uh, I did not see them today. I'll tell you what it was. A lot of Eldrazi Tron. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so Chalice is pretty good. <laughs> so there's a lot. Tons of yeah. Etron. I think I think it was the most popular deck of the weekend next to Blue-Green. I actually l- remember looking at the results on Twitter now that you mentioned it. Someone had tweeted out a table of it. I think there were eight Eldrazi Tron decks in the top 32. That's Those are fair, good numbers that don't need any sort of investigation or any sort of case opened up against them. Mm-hmm. Don't at me is what that's, that means. Hmm. Well, that wraps up our breakdown this week. When we return, we'll be checking in on the state of Pioneer for the final few weeks of the year. We'll be listing a lot, off a lot of cards, so pull out your MTG encyclopedias. Stay with us. Watching Pioneer evolve in real time can feel like a whirlwind. Although cards aren't banned every week, the somewhat frequent shakeups, coupled with the very powerful cards that have already proven themselves as format staples, can make it feel like Pioneer evolves quickly and can leave you in the dust if you're not paying close attention. I've said on previous episodes, I haven't been playing that much Pioneer and have essentially left it to Shane for my daily debriefs. I also insist that Shane refer to me as El Presidente when he does that. I'm here for you, El Presidente. Today we're checking in on this brand new format, the non-rotating Rugrat called Pioneer, with some surface-level impressions of what's going on. We'll talk about our individual observations of what's been working, what's been posing challenges throughout our games, and a few other tidbits that we hope will help you spike your next tournament. So to start... Zach, our basic mountain aficionado, it looks like you've made some observations about Pioneer's lands. I have, and it turns out that sometimes non-basic lands can be good. We can never play, so I'm you glad mean to snow mountains? have some. I play tons of non-basic lands, and Pioneer, I believe I play close to, hold on, I play seven, maybe eight. So think about that for a little bit, Dave. And because it, it works out in Pioneer, that you can get away with a lot of really funky mana bases in the end. And it's because, that the, although the fixing, not terrible, isn't as efficient as it is in Modern. So you can't really have like the super efficient deck where you can always get the colors you need right away without some big cost. So because of that, it's easier to stick to one or two colors and run a lot of non-basics on the side. Sure. You know, for a lot of two-color decks, after two playsets of good on-color duels, maybe shocks and checks or fast lands, whatever it is, you actually have a ton of room left for mana. So I think because you have this ability to run really interesting lands and because of the way Pioneer is, you really have to get a lot of value out of your mana every single turn. 
And I think a big part of that is the value the lands can create for you. And that can be early game and late game. So when I say utilizing your mana, that can mean a bunch of different things. That can mean curving out with your creatures, a one drop into a two drop into a three drop, swing, swing, swing. That can mean holding up removal or you know, a counter spell or a draw spell on your opponent's turn and then you know using that at the end for your turn. And the lands can really help fill in the blanks with these things. So the creature lands are pretty good with this as they are early game fixing. Your turn one play is sacrificing any mana from that land, but then later having it be a creature sometimes and that being actually very, very good. So the creature lands are very good and we'll touch more on those later. There's a lot to them, but something that is also very good and very low opportunity cost in cards that I'm personally a fan of one of them, at least the castles from Eldraine are all really good in Pioneer. And because of the one land requirement and it not having to be a basic land, very easy to run. Yeah, I'm, I think it's really interesting what you, the way that you describe some of the the kind of continuum of lands available. Where at the top you sort of have these expensive to activate lands in the castles, and at the bottom you have things that just give small incremental bonuses when they come into play. And the castles are sort of like the uh, like the uh, the Cadillacs, right? They're the big ones. <laughs> they cost a lot of resources. You don't get to use them all the time, but they're pretty good. I've never driven a Cadillac, so I don't really know what that metaphor means but um <clears throat> they're definitely all over the place yeah the castles are super good like the opportunity cost is so low because all you have to do is have a single type land of like the, the color that's typically shared in the deck so it's mathematically fine to run thing you know to run like at least two if not three or four in your decks because you're not going to have a lot of instances where they're coming into play tapped and so you're just essentially playing like a mountain or a forest or a swamp with significant upside when it comes to some of them for sure yeah the thing that's really interesting about them to me too is that the activated ability on the castles are all two colored right so it's all something plus two pips to activate them plus the land itself so you can't really run these in it's it would be tough to run these in a three color deck right like you have to really t tweak your mana base to make these work in a three color deck but in a two color deck they're pretty good and in a one color deck they're great yeah so we saw the power of castle lockthwain in the mono black decks it really lets the deck continue to draw cards and pull ahead like a land that draws cards for just three mana and tapping the castle is dope. The red castle Embereth is awesome. It allows you to get some late game extra damage out of all of your creatures. Yeah. And the ability just to threaten an activation is good too. And that's what I was referring to earlier with being able to hold up something. So you attack and if they, they have to take in the Embereth combat math, right? So they have to respect that. And then if they don't, if you don't activate it later, you may get to cast a stomp or you get to cast an opt, whatever your deck is doing. I've been particularly impressed with Castle Ardenvale, the white land. It's practically the colonnade in the pioneer blue white control mana bases. Yeah. It's interesting. It's very slow. But huh. but it's it's easy to use in that sense, and it doesn't commit you the same way that Colonnade does. So it's an interesting kind of take on that as well, where you know you can't end step activate Colonnade, right? That you don't get any value out of that. But you can end step activate Ardenvale, and some um it just it takes some time to get set up. But it it is the win condition in that deck, basically at least pre board. Yeah, the Green Castle is just like straight up mana advantage turns four mana into six in a mono mono green deck or a green splash something else deck it's really easy to use very low opportunity cost yeah i mean realistically it turns five mana into six by the way don't for, don't forget because you have to tap castle garen brig for it too it's two green green tap castle garen brig six fine just saying 
It's it doesn't ramp you two; it ramps you one. It's still a soul land, essentially in that in that sense. And of course, the blue land. Nobody wants to talk about Vantress. I mean, it's, that's valuable in a control deck. Yeah, I've seen it in plenty of control decks. Absolutely, like I, I've seen control decks with one of this and one of the White Castle out at the same time. Oh, I had two of each oh. out the other the other day when I was playing, and I definitely could not use them all. I when I was did a league with um with blue white the other day the the thing that i was doing was i was digging for answers with vantress and i had so much mana out i got you know we got it was a very late game where i was scrying two at the end of my turn or at the end of their turn and then scrying two in my upkeep to try and find a, a supreme verdict basically and i think i got to do that three or four times where i was doing it both so i was just finding whatever card i wanted basically every turn it was pretty pretty great That's sick i mean there, there can be a bit of a strain when you're putting these into your deck, they're not an automatic four of, even in monocolored decks, because you have things like Ramonet Ruins in mono red aggro. You have things like Mutavault in your mono black deck and some others. You have things like Nykthos in your mono green devotion deck, your Sheffit Dunes in your mono white. And so because of the addition of those, they're not typed lands. You might have to lower the number of castles that you're using to avoid them coming into play tapped, because in a lot of these decks, you want to be curving out and not have those castles come into play tapped because that can be really devastating for curving out and establishing your board presence and casting the spells that you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some decks you get to run as many as you want, though, which is interesting. I mean, I think we mentioned a few of them. I think the deserts are surprisingly playable and played in Pioneer. Like Zach was mentioning earlier, the opportunity cost is pretty darn low and the payoffs can be quite good. Like I think Zach and I both share an affection for Ramanap Ruins. You know, this was this was a card banned in standard, probably because they didn't want to ban Hazaret, but you know, that that really gives red decks land-based endgame reach. And as we know, things that are land-based are really powerful effects because they're hard to interact with. So it's interesting. I've run Ramanap in Modern here and there, and it, the the difference in power level between Pioneer and Modern with a card like Ramanap is really interesting. You just don't have time to activate it in Modern all that much, and I think in Pioneer, it's the right kind of speed to be able to use it. Yeah, and and that last two damage can be so crucial and game defining. I even played a LGS tournament with Mono Red over the weekend, and. I don't remember what it was. Oh, it was, um, I cast the light of the stage and I drew two lands off of it. And one was going to go to exile and it was a castle and a Ramanap. And I decided the castle because it was repeatable. And then by the end of the game, I realized I absolutely should have taken that Ramanap ruins because that two damage could have made all the difference. There are many times where I'm at my opponent like near the ropes and I'm like, okay, they might stabilize. How do I do this? Like if I can draw this, I can do, oh, Ramanap ruins. I have lethal on board already. And like, it really does feel like that sometimes. Like it's just... The one damage does matter, so like some decks can't run it, and like Dave was saying, in modern it, it is too slow. I think the only deck you can really play it in there is probably Mono Red Prison because that is a slow deck that wants to grind out the game. But in Pioneer, because like you have a few more turns to set up, and because like it's not, do, you know, do your broken thing for your opponent does their broken thing. It's a little more usable. Yeah, I mean, you see things like Chef at Dunes and White, Hash Up Oasis and Green. Um, those give those decks some advantages that you just really want to have access to. They're really going to be run in smaller amounts than many of the castles because they're painful to generate that colored mana you need. And, but however, they do have the benefit of never coming into play tapped. So, you know, there's pros and cons to these things like many lands. 
Like I mentioned earlier, I think the Creature Lands are particularly good in Pioneer. They're in a lot of decks. Small opportunity costs, big potential outcomes. So five out of the eight legal ones are currently seeing play. If you want to include Westvale Abbey, that's six out of the nine ones seeing play. Nice. But overall, out of the ones that don't see play, it's Needle Spires, Mobilized District, and Hostile Desert. I didn't see any Pioneer decks online with those. I'm sure people are brewing with them somewhere and maybe not just posting it, but these decks not really putting up any results. But out of the rest of the dual colored cycle from Return to Zendikar and Oath of the Gatewatch, there's the Black Meta ones are seeing the most play. Shambling Vent, Hissing Quagmire are appearing in more decks and in more numbers than the rest. Wandering Fumarole is appearing in a few decks here and there. And then usually maybe as a two of, one of, and then Lumbering Falls is in like two decks as a one of, and those decks I hit with bands today. So maybe we'll see more Lumbering Falls as a alt-win con. Boy, there's nothing like, nothing as tilting as losing to Lumbering Falls over, across like six turns of them activating it. It's like losing to like a meandering tower shell. I think, Zach, you, you did not talk about perhaps the most powerful one in the format. That's Mutavault. I think I think Mutavault is insane. Right. So I, that was, I was referring to just the ones that make uh, color mana. So Mutavault does not make color mana, but it is very, very, very good. Oh, yeah. It's just so easy to use in so many different decks. And the activation cost is so low. And you get like these sort of random tribal triggers. Things get interesting really fast mm-hmm. with Mutavault. It also never comes into play tapped. Right. Um, It can be dangerous to play one on turn one then try to swing with it. If you're too greedy, your opponent can, you know, Fatal Push or Shock or Wild Slash your land. And I've been punished so deeply that way, where if I had just waited and like started playing my cards on curve, it would have been so much better. So even though it could have generated that value, it's better as a land and later to like, in, you know, just start mopping up end. Or you can even, in, you know, in some decks, activate block and save a Planeswalker. Do any of you think Mutaval might be on a Watsy watch list for similar reasons as Smuggler's Copter, since it's so ubiquitous and like so easy to run for a lot of decks i see i think it's not that ubiquitous right like it's it's not it's it doesn't fly yeah, it doesn't fly it's not a four of and in, in every doesn't generate card advantage card selection let's just enter let's just weave our thoughts together zach like a poem yeah absolutely i think i mean like you know mono red doesn't run any because it has access to other lands i think it's a type of land that isn't the same ubiquitous power level and strategic gameplay and doesn't fit into the same strategy of as many decks as a card like uh, Smuggler's Copter. Yeah, exactly. I do miss the ally color options here. Now, I don't miss those actual cards, because I think they're probably more powerful than, at least the good ones out of that that cycle from World Wake are more powerful than this format. But yeah, those are really good. Likewise, I would love a treetop village. Ooh. Yeah, a couple of monocolor activation creature lands. Yeah, because green and needs also some more three power. toughness, yeah. which is hard to deal with at instant speed. <laughs> I mean, I'd be into. We <laughs> might talk about that later. I'd be into fairy conclave. That would be a nice card to have it, uh, access to. Yeah, the fact that you're finishing off games with like a token generating card in a control deck is kind of rough, but I'll, I'll make you do it. You know what? I did it in 1996 with Kildoran Outpost and and Thawing Glaciers. I can do it in 2019 <laughs> with Castle Castle Arden Vale and Dig Through Time. So in my day, we walked up. Yeah. We walked up hill both ways. You can do it too. Do you want the hive to be legal in Pioneer? No, Arden Vale is good enough. Thank you. <laughs> no, sir. Please. <laughs> no, sir. Please don't bring the hive into my format, uh, Zach. 
I like this discussion about kind of uh, non-basic, non-dual lands that to, to be considered and how to consider running them in your deck. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit less about deck construction and more kind of about strategic thinking a little bit, I guess, and like sideboard choice and sideboarding. Because I think, I think Pioneer, much like every format, rewards sideboard construction and sideboard decisions in, in a slightly different way. Because I think that Pioneer is like a really snowball-y format that really advantages the player that's on the play. And when you're on the draw, you need to have a plan in place that's going to interrupt the, the, the inherent tempo of your opponent, right? And I don't think this is really an original thought by yours truly by any means, right? Like Ari Lax was writing about this uh, you know, feature of Pioneer like a month ago on star city games and other people have brought it up that it, it seems like it's a really play draw dependent format. And in my experience, that seems to be the case as well because the temp just don't lose the dial. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's my plan when I was I, even on control, I played mono, I played like, uh, what three plus leagues of mono red this week. And man, I won the die roll a lot. That felt good. I think that even with a number of bands, since like lax wrote his article, and those bands looked designed to take the power level out of like these proactive and aggressive decks and they to bring them down a little bit. It's still safe to say I think that Pioneer rewards taking board advantage early and keeping that board advantage and steamrolling your opponent into the ground as much as you can if you're playing, you know, those type of decks. There are of course reactive decks, but I think we have seen the majority of the decks that have been successful in Pioneer to be those proactive strategies. Don't you agree? It seems like it's turning now a little bit more towards blue white control. I think it's getting a little bit cloudy. And with the bands today, it might be cloudier still. Because yeah. I do question a little bit if there are going to be a ton of proactive creature-based decks out there, if Blue White, if Supreme Verdict is just going to keep getting better, then is Blue White Control just going to be atop the metagame for a little bit or not? Shane, I think what you're saying with the snowball effect is really similar or in the same line of thought as what I was saying, where you need to utilize your mana every turn, right? So whether that be like, hey... I'm playing a resource every single turn and utilizing it every single turn, whether that be on mine or yours, but these lands are getting used. You have to apply pressure, but how that works is different, but you have to constantly be moving. And I'll kind of talk about how on the draw on the play, it's that's pretty straightforward, right? Like you want to play your creatures out on curve, maybe ahead of curve if you have mana dorks, and keep the pressure and the pedal to the metal. But on the draw, that changes in a really significant way with both the, the deck's construction and the sideboard cards that you choose to use and, and mulligan for. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, one of the things that I think is important to realize or maybe you know, acknowledge or discuss is how magic design has really shifted towards being threat-based and the answers are a little bit worse or significantly worse than the threats. And so that incentivizes building around using your threats and establishing the threats on the board. And then the gameplay sort of ends up being, how am I using my answers that are typically worse than the threats on the board to continue to press my advantage. I think it's also worth pointing out that that shift happened basically around the time that Return of Ravnica came out. So when we moved from kind of time spiral-esque design lingo into what Mark Rosewater is called New World Order, that coincides pretty closely with Pioneer 
as far as like a time span goes. And so I think it's even more, it's been very clear and standard the last couple of years, but it's very magnified in Pioneer as a format as well. I mean, so you have like your threats that are being, they're resilient to removal, they're coming back from the graveyard, they have really big power and toughness, they're ignoring small blockers, they're creating residual value with like a token or all those things combined. You know, like when, you, when you're playing a Steel Leaf champion, it's a three mana five four that you can't block with your the opposing mana dorks. So it's that's typically getting through unless you have your own similar huge blocker on the other side. Missy mortars, lightning lava X. coil. Well, I mean, lightning X is one mana, so good on you, Dave. Um, so, but when you're able to get like Dave mentioned, you're getting seven of these. You know, huge block formats together now in Pioneer. It's pretty straightforward to get those best threats, play them out on curve, design your deck to put opponents on the back foot with answers that aren't lining up really well against many of the threats that you're presenting, right? And you combine that with a London Mulligan that's increasing your consistency of enacting your game plan. That's a big reason why something like Once Upon a Time was banned, because it was adding extra consistency to all these already consistent decks. Smuggler's Copter got banned because it's this excellent proactive threat that continues to snowball value. And so, like I said, even after these bans, these decks are really proactive and you have these similar game patterns of getting ahead on the play and staying behind on the draw. So you have to be able to break that pattern on the draw and try to get the initiative to swing in your favor in order to take back your chance to win that game on the draw. And so there's a lot of different ways in which you can do that. I think the first way that we should talk about is, you know, control and combo try to get around that pattern because they don't rely on having those proactive threats in the first place, right? They're either winning by comboing off or they're generating two or three for ones so that the opponent gets buried in value through things like Supreme Verdict, Detention Spheres, the Planeswalkers, and so on, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Planeswalkers are a big part of that equation in particular in Pioneer, right? I mean, Blue-White Control runs eight main, main deck and a couple more in the sideboard. Um, and they're kind of flavor to taste. It's everything from both Teferi's, Narset, Jace, Architect of Thought. They're all they're all appearing in that. So there's a lot, uh, a lot of value you can do once you get those online. And I think Supreme Verdict, like you've hinted at, Dave, I think is a hugely format defining card. And that's what's going to really generate your you know two, three, or four for ones to get that value yeah. back. I mean, I feel like it's the best I've ever seen a Wrath of God be is in this format kind of interesting i mean combo and control aside though i think it's more decks have the ability to get mana advantage out of their narrower but cheaper answers from the sideboard and what those allow you to do is either invalidate or remove the opposing threats that you're facing down and then simultaneously presenting your own and that's what you were referring to earlier zach by saying like you know i need to be using my mana every turn and if you're on the draw and your opponent's already doing that, how can you recapture that advantage? And it's by being more efficient with your answers than they are, I think, a lot of times. And so we've talked a lot about uh, cards like Pithing Needle, a one CMC spell that can turn off a three CMC spell, like a Teferi or a four mana Chandra or a five mana Teferi. You get this huge mana advantage by inval- invalidating what your opponent's doing and then getting that mana tempo back. I think a card that's interesting to talk about in Pioneer is Thoughtseize because that's a single mana card that can remove these threats up the curve from your opponent. 
that you don't really have another answer for. But I think that Thoughtseize, I think Thoughtseize is pretty worse in Pioneer than in Modern because these decks are so redundant. They have these powerful threats that are somewhat replaceable, right? Like what's the real difference between a Lovestruck Beast and a Steel Leaf Champion? I mean, it's there. I don't know. What? <laughs> one one point of toughness, essentially, and a conditional clause about attacking. But besides that, not a lot. It's not very funny. <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out that Thoughtseize is the most played card sure. in, in Pioneer. But mid-range is dead, Dave. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... I think it's the power level is there, and it's a necessary evil of the format it definitely has to be played there's many decks that just need a one mana answer to something and also it's a it's a catch-all for all kinds of different strategies so i think it's actually really really good but um i can understand it's tough to keep in sometimes when you know that someone's just going to be attacking you with a bunch of creatures sometimes you have to side it out yeah i think it's it's better in modern i think because the there's a lot of decks in modern that rely on key cards and there's fewer, I think, in Pioneer that do. I think some interesting options are creatures you might overlook, like Fourth Bridge Prowler and Forge Devil. When when they there's one drops that ETB and they ping an opposing creature for one, so that lets you remove a mana dork when you're on the draw and get to your own body to attack or block with. So that's a nice little tempo swing right there. During the mono black aggro days, you know, just a few weeks ago, we saw cards like Legion's End a two-mana spell, Dark Betrayal, a single-mana spell, being run as these important cards to regain the tempo from being on the draw in the mirror matchup. And in you know black-based decks as well, you get things like Fatal Push, Noxious Grasp, uh, cheap answers like Abrupt Decay can be important there because they also have inherent mana advantage. Even the spending two-mana on a Decay to remove a three-mana threat is still mana advantage, and then you're able to follow it up with your own decent one drop on that same turn, you can then start to swing the board in your favor by generating those small incremental advantages. And that's the kind of stuff that you absolutely have to be doing on the draw in Pioneer because of those snowball effects that I think are more prevalent here because it's so board-based. Um, Simic decks, blue decks, you get to look at things like Aether Gust, Hunt the Hunter, Mystical Dispute, red decks, you get things like Fry, Museum Mortars, Roast. So... What do you guys? What do you guys? What have you guys been seeing? What have you guys been running to in Pioneer that you didn't think were really playable cards, or that you wouldn't consider in Modern but seem really important in Pioneer? Because there is no Mindstone, Chandra's Regulator is forming a very similar role for this, and what what that's doing to some extent is letting me use all my mana in a turn where I can tap one to utilize its ability and maybe get ahead a little bit and. Because I can't generate card advantage a lot of other ways, a small thing like this, like a small mana sink that might have an upside as well, is a card that, while would never be considered in modern, might be worth it here just because it, it smooths things out a little more and also provides card selection. Yeah, for me, I think it's cards like Aether Gust. It's kind of like the color hosers that seem powerful, but not that powerful, where you're kind of like, is Devout Decree really okay? I mean, it's just a sorcery, but it actually turns out that you need it sometimes. Aethergust is similar, that even though the, the opposing player gets to pr- choose whether it goes on top of their deck or on the bottom of their deck, yeah, exactly. the ability to interact with a permanent in play or a spell on the stack is actually pretty worthwhile. And so there's a bunch of interesting cards uh, in that sense that I think I wasn't, I'm a little bit surprised to be playing those two. I think in Soul Artifact is the perfect example of this. A card that is super vulnerable in modern because the removal is so good that 
your rate of getting two for one is quite high where in a format like pioneer and where your removal is a bit more situational and not as diverse across colors you're able to get away with the potential threat of being two for one if you say insole something like a bowmat courier or an ornithopter when you insoled your land when we played my deck just did not have a way to remove it in pioneer like i looked at it and i was like i well i have to just lose now because i can't interact with this card here right whereas modern would have path to exile or dismember of the void or dismember exactly yeah so a lot of what we've been talking about here are essentially cheap sideboard cards typically color hosers you know things that are trying to shut down or invalidate or remove specific threats in specific colors right that you're not going to run main deck and so i think what this really gets to is the mana advantage inherent that in that like if you can remove a three or a four drop with your two mana or your one mana spell you're coming out ahead there and that's the kind of thing that is really required to both have access to and give yourself access to and then even try to mulligan to using the power of the london mull because if you just keep the same kind of hand you'd keep on the play but you're on the draw you're likely going to be behind if a deck is trying to do the similar thing to you to, to bring it back one more time uh, to the lands thing right here. So this is another thing where um, the lands can help fill in the curve a little bit. So you, there's, because if you have these lower curve, really powerful spells, you can do things like activate a castle and play a one mana or two mana spell in the same turn at a certain point. And that is really good, obviously, and the sort of thing you need to do. For sure. And then I think when on the on the opposite side, if you're on the play you really need to be able to cement your advantage inherent in the gameplay by you know ensuring that your keeps are going to allow you to establish that early control of the game as quickly as possible whether that's you know my curve looks good here i have the cheap interaction i brought in from the side i have my combo ready to go i have that mana dork into three drop because the consistency that that london mole provides really should be seen as an advantage to the person on the play um, even more than perhaps on the draw I think my observation, my section of this podcast, follows Shane's nicely, in part because it, it was inspired a little bit by a game I had against Shane. I was playing Blue Red Emerge. Shane was playing Simic Food. And in my hand, I had a bunch of Wild Slashes and Is It Charms. And Shane had a Wicked Wolf. And I looked at my hand and thought to myself, there is nothing i can do to win this (laughs) even with a handful of removal wild slash eat a food oh okay well your turn yeah (laughs) basically and and what i've gradually been coming to realize and this is really anecdotal at first it's that x3s basically creatures with three or greater toughness and pioneer can be very hard to kill and i think a lot of that has to do with the absence of bolt and the general nature of the removal in the format Bolt, your favorite card, missing. For now. <laughs> For now. <laughs> bah, bah, bah. So I looked at the MTG Goldfish top 50 lists for Pioneer to identify both the 50 most popular creatures as well as the 50 most popular non-creature spells to try to get a picture of the delta between the threats and the interaction that are available to us. And in the top 50 non-creature spells, 20 of them can remove or bounce a creature on the board. So they can essentially interact with the board. 
And these range from things like Fatal Push to Wild Slash to Aether Gust. Even cards like Azorius Charm, which will put a creature on top of uh, the player's library. Um, I also included the Teferis in this as well um, as those bounce creatures back to the hand. Shane, you asked a minute ago about a card that I was surprised to be playing in Pioneer. My, my answer to that question, by the way, is Azorius Charm is shocking to me that I play it and that it's in all the blue white control oh, decks. so good. Two mana to draw a card. God, where are we? Anyway, I didn't want to hijack you, Stan, but th- that's just a good answer for that question. Thank you. I mean, nothing stings more than Azorius Charm putting a creature on top of my library when I'm attacking with that creature. So among these top 50 cards, only three of these were one mana spells, which were Fatal Push, Wild Slash, and Magma Spray. And of these... Only Fatal Push could potentially remove a creature with three toughness by itself. Likewise, we know the issues with enabling Revolt and Pioneer is quite a bit harder without access to fetch lands. Oh my gosh, it's brutally hard. You have to like kind of maybe do some tricksy stuff on board or have the Fabled Passage. So three of your top 50 non-creature spells are removal. Only one of them can potentially kill an X3. Moving on, I looked at the top 50 creature spells in the format. Of these top 50 non-creature spells, 15 of them can remove X3s, but there are at least two CMC. And two of these were Wraths, and three of those were Planeswalkers. Maybe even four of those were Planeswalkers, if you include Liliana, The Last Hope. And technically, she was a Planeswalker last time I checked. Yeah, and you are talking about... When you say remove, I mean, some of these are even bounce, too, which are just kind of like temporary tempo speed bumps. Yeah. Not if it's a token. (laughs) Yeah, so the cards I'm looking at here were like Noxious Grasp and Supreme Verdict and Assassin's Trophy. Um, The Teferis could count in this category, Aethergust. And some notable absentees from this top 50 list were Roast, Mizia Mortars, which I've been seeing a lot of lately. I'm a little surprised it's not in the top 50. Maybe it's a bit outdated. It just seems like a strictly worse Lava Coil to me. I mean, you're never going to cast it for the Overload unless you're Zach. Oh, come on. You're definitely going to do it in certain decks. Dude, yeah. you're definitely going to do it. Nope. You're definitely going to do nope. it. When you're running yeah. 22 red sources in your mono red deck, you can Overload There is there, there is a reason Lava Coil is like the 11th most played spell you can turn four Chandra Tertia Defiance into turn five overloaded uh, Mizia Mortars with one mana left over for change. Bring it home, buy some rock candy with it. Regardless of your feelings on Mizia Mortars, I think the point here is that more often than not, you have to spend at least two mana to remove a creature with toughness three or greater. By the way, Lava Quail is the 43rd most played spell, by the way, on, on Goldfish. Anyway, proceed. Check and mate chain. Well, it's more than museum orders. Higher up the scale. No, wrong. I've been submitting a lot of decks. Notably missing from this top 50 list are some more conditional red removal spells that are at one mana, like red cap melee, lightning axe, etc., which do see play in some popular decks, although I guess they're not as popular to make the top 50 list. But in any case, the conditions that they basically present the player might be such that they're not as easy to cast as wild slash or lava coil that's a real quick reason why some of the eldraine lands that take three lands to come into play on tap don't see play because that cost building opportunity is real and not being able to play a three drop on turn three because you have to take a turn off can mean you lose the game 
taking off a turn can you lose the game sometimes so why does this matter i think looking at the top 50 creatures kind of helps paint a picture for what the issues are with some of the removal and how it might present different game states or games to play out because among the top 50 creatures in the format 17 of them are x3 or better so these are creatures like lovestruck beast bone crusher giant murderous rider glory bringer Heck, even Fae of Wishes is a 1-4. These are all hmm. sick 80s thrash metal songs, especially Fae of Wishes. Glory bringer! Wicked wolf! <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> you, <laughs> what, what genre of music is that? Wicked wolf! I think it's Iron Maiden, whatever Bone genre that is. Bone giant. Champion of dusk. This list does not include star stars or cards that grow, such as Scavenging Ooze, Grim Flare, Tireless Tracker, or Hydroid Crisis, because sometimes those cards can be killed with a Wild Slash, but if the controller is doing it right, more often than not, they're going to be able to evade that one mana removal. And what this tells me, and, and basically what I've been learning, is I have to be extra careful with my removal spells. One mana removal is great for one or two mana creatures. You know, wild slashing a goose always feels good. But because killing bigger creatures requires a significantly bigger mana investment, even if that's one extra mana, I think that's a pretty big deal. I think you might get punished if you are wasting your abrupt decays and your lightning strikes on things like mana dorks or one drop prowess creatures. Stan, I think that opens up a really interesting question. So obviously, Bolt the Bird is a bit of a meme and something that people say for in modern all the time, but as a truism, you don't think that it's just sort of a stock thing here that you shouldn't always just kill a mana dork? Well, I think until d- today you had to. I think it's a little bit of a different thing now that Oko's banned. What do you think, Stan? Oko on turn two is so upsetting. Yeah, I think you have to read the room, obviously. <laughs> Jesus, read the room, Zach. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if, if you're on the play and it's turn two and all you have is a lightning strike and you're concerned that your opponent might do a turn two Oko, of course you're going to spend your lightning strike on that Gilded Goose or that Llanowar Elf. But let's say you're playing against a deck like Green Black Elves and you don't necessarily have to worry about something like that, then perhaps saving your two mana stronger removal is a better idea when... You know, there's bigger threats in that deck. Yeah, like, so let's look at something like Wicked Wolf, right? It's a four mana three three that comes into play. It does a little, does a little fighty fight, right? So that lightning strike that you talked about was going to be a nice reverse two for one on your part if you keep it up, because they're going to ETB, they're going to try to fight your creature. You're going to be like, no, no, no. And, you know, zap it off the board, you save your creature, you remove theirs, you have a two mana mana advantage, and you're potentially off to the races. That's the kind of stuff that, you know, like you talked about, Stan, I think this melds in nicely with the previous section, which is judicious use of your removal, thinking about the the plan that your opponent's going to have, and also thinking about how you're going to generate some kind of mana or card advantage on your end. Totally. And something I find myself thinking about a lot, and I'd be really curious to hear your feedbacks on, is that whether creatures in this format are among your best removal spells, potentially making this a more blocking-friendly format than something like Modern. If they're literally Bonecrusher Giant and literally Gory Blinger, then yes, they are. Wolf. I like them. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
creatures that are are literally removal like those ones i think that's definitely true you have to look at those options but i also think you know i don't know if you all remember but we we gave a little like preview or like our hopes for what pioneer was going to be a long time ago and i said my phrase was attacking and blocking are good yeah and i (laughs) i think that that's great and that's an interesting feature of the format if you really have to think about combat math and how to tactically block people in this format because you don't you really don't ever have to do that in modern all that much and so i I think it's definitely possible that that could be true stan and i i kind of think that would be a welcome texture of pioneer as a format if it was true something i've noticed in some of the different decks that i've been playing over the last week or so because blocking is quote-unquote good and the threat of having blockers up might prevent people from attacking board stalls seem to be a thing that happens especially when creature decks are facing off each other and this is a basically a non sequitur at this point but I wonder if more decks need to have strategies for getting around board stalls, especially if they're a creature deck. You know, whether they're playing Goblin Chain Whirler or Shaman of the Pack, two creatures that I've been, you know, casting recently. I wonder if having those types of solutions to gummed up board states might be one of the differences between winning and losing. I mean, that's where something like a resolved Oko could snowball so well. We don't have that anymore to worry about, to like control the power and toughness on the other side of the board. And so I think that that's going to be an interesting change in the texture of the format is, you know, how do we handle board stalls now? Is it going to be through vehicles like Heart of Kirin? Is it going to be through uh, two-for-ones on a stick or like, uh, you know, uh, Wicked Wolf or Questing Beast or things like that? Is it going to be through Supreme Verdict? Sure, at instant speed. Um, I have a theory, and it's that maybe some combat tricks can be good. Mm. And I think that Embercleave is a combat trick, and that is a card that I've loved in Pioneer, pushing through a stalled board state. Because in order to trade for the creature, they usually have to put like four creatures in front of it, and that clears the board real quick. Yeah, it also factors into the value discussion that we've been having ongoing through this entire show. Playing a card for cheaper and equipping for free is good, and you need things like that. And so I wonder if that aside, if there are maybe more combat tricks or flashier instant speed things that people are you know can look into or think about to push through these stalled gummed up board states. Yeah, I think the last thing, if you wouldn't mind me throwing a rule, a kind of something else to think about in this section, Stan, is something I've brought up a couple of times on here and that you you hinted about when you were talking earlier about red cap uh, melee is that conditional like one mana conditional removal spells are worth knowing and worth seeing if you want to try to play the decks that have them in it. Like Lightning Axe in a meta that has a bunch of the Simic Ramp deck in it is very, very, very good. And it's it's a card that makes, is it, Phoenix in particular, or maybe any other deck that can turn the discard trigger into some kind of advantage well positioned in a meta that has that because there isn't anything else that deals five damage at instant speed for cheap right similarly you know i've talked about it a couple times on here in in boros feather you run reckless rage because the two damage that gets dealt to your creatures is a bonus in that in that deck and so you have a a way to do four damage to something at instant speed buff your guy 
and then kind of move on from there. Plus, you can recycle it over and over again with Feather as well. There are other cards in the format in Pioneer that are out there that are one mana destroy target creature, one mana deal damage to target creature that are just good to know and good to have around because I, I think that those are things that can definitely become like a mana efficiency delta or make a deck that is extremely efficient and well-positioned in the meta work. So just to build off of what Stan's been talking about here, you know, he was really focused on looking at cheap removal and how to interact with creatures in the fastest way. What we haven't done so far in looking at Pioneer as a meta is evaluate how much cards cost to cast in Pioneer versus how much they cost to cast in Modern, which I think is a mind shift that a lot of us need to to kind of think about for a minute. Yeah, because so often when we've talked about our card evaluation, we talk about we start at one because Modern's so cheap and so efficient, but that's not necessarily the case in Pioneer, right? Yep. So if you look at the 50 most popular played cards in Pioneer right now, only 12 of them are one one converted mana cost. And the list is interesting, and, and it's all format staples, of course. It's Thoughtseize, Fatal Push, uh, Gilded Goose, Llanowar Elves, Elvish Mystic, Opt. That's the top 10, within the top 10, those six cards. And then Duress, Wild Slash, Stubborn Denial, Swift Spear, Soulscar Mage, and Bomat Courier are the other six that round out the top 50. And that's mixed between creatures and, and spells. By comparison, if you look at Modern's top 50 cards, 22 of them are one or zero mana. And 23, if you count Engineered Explosives as one of the cards in that set, 20 of them are one mana straight up. So the fact is, there's double the number of format staples in modern versus pioneer that are one or zero mana. So it's really interesting because obviously that means that the most common converted mana cost in modern is one mana, at least if you look at the top the top 50 spells. And I think that probably holds through the format before. It's certainly our experience is that you every deck in modern needs to start with one mana and wants to start with one mana. If you look at Pioneer, the thing that was really interesting to me when I evaluated the top 50 spells on the Goldfish list is that the most frequent converted mana cost in the top 50 in Pioneer is three CMC. Heck yeah, baby. Which is totally, totally different. And in fact, the distribution between the spell kind of converted uh, mana cost is much more spread out evenly in Pioneer than it is in Modern. So let me just give you the breakdown really fast. In Modern, in the top 50, three cards cost zero, 20 cards cost one, 10 cards cost two, five cards cost three, and kind of you go on from there to fill in the rest of the 50, which is another 12 cards. In Pioneer... There are no zero casting cost cards in the top 50. 12 cost one CMC, 11 cost two CMC, and 15 cost three CMC right now. So why would it be that Pioneer looks like it could be all about three drops? Well, part of it, I think, is that what Stan was talking about in the previous section, where you want to get to creatures that are of a certain toughness because the removal isn't that isn't that strong against them. So you actually have an opportunity to spend mana on bigger creatures because of that. But the other thing is that the power in the format, one of the main pillars of power in the format is actually mana dorks. And that's kind of different from from modern as well. Three, again, of the one CMC spells in Pioneer are Gilded Goose, Llanowar Elves, and Elvish Mystic. And they're all in the top 10. So I think what this tells us is that there's a huge portion of decks that are set up right now to try to go and try to reward decks from ramping from one to three. Now, that may change 
with Oko being banned. Clearly, that was one of the huge incentives for doing that. But it's not like Mono Green Devotion is really going to go away, and it's not going to stop playing Llanowar Elves and, and Elvish Mystics. So I think that, that that whole ramp thing using one CMC creatures is a little bit more pervasive and a little more kind of redundant in in Pioneer than it is in Modern. What that does on the flip side is that it sets up this pattern where you get rewarded very heavily for disrupting people that are trying to ramp from one to three. And I think that that's probably going to stay given the way that the format and the bannings that happen today are too. What's interesting to me about this whole thought process is that it kind of began from an observation I shared, which is that it felt to me like one mana spells were so vital to this format success that I didn't really want to play a deck without them. And that essentially stemmed from me trying to play this blue red emerge deck where all of my interaction was like, is it charm brazen borrowers or um, stomp? Uh, And it's like these two mana spells just are not packing enough of a punch when they're like the lowest CMC that I can count on to execute any type of plan. Yeah, absolutely. But I and so I think you really do have to play one mana spells. And if you look at the decks that exist and are at the top of the metagame, they've all kind of chosen a path, right, of how they can play the one mana spells that are available to them. So, you know, the way that that the complexion of the one mana spells in Pioneer are different than the ones in Modern are essentially two things. There isn't really a one-mana giant threat in the same way that Death Shadow is a one-mana giant threat. Gurmag Angler is in the format, but people aren't playing it quite as much. Um, it's a little bit harder to ramp out and play for as cheap as one mana, where in Modern you can do it all the time. So there aren't as many kind of like huge threats at one CMC that you get to protect like legacy style as there are in Modern. The other thing is a bunch of the one CMC cards in modern are draw cards, are, are cantrips, essentially. You know, it's Opt, Serum Visions, Thought Scour, Ancient Stirrings. N- none of those cards for sculpting your draws are available in Pioneer with the exception of Opt. So the one CMC cards that both formats are built around kind of fit into the same pillars, right? There's kind of the removal suite at one, there's the ramp suite at one, and there's the disruption suite at one, which is made up of kind of discard with a smattering of cheap counters in in the form of stubborn denial. Lots of those cards are the same. The only thing that really doesn't appear in um, in modern is ramp necessarily as quite high, as high of a pillar of the format uh, these days anyway. So I think that you're kind of choosing one of those lanes when you start thinking about building a deck or you're playing fast red cards because a lot of the cheapest threats are those red fast cards in Bowman Courier, Soul Scar Mage, and Swifty. So it's interesting that while you still have to build your decks around plans like these, the difference between Pioneer and Modern is that the higher casting costs and lack of the ability to sculpt, sculpt draws means that you don't get to execute your early plans as consistently. And that's why you get to play cards that are higher casting costs in the long run, like creatures like Wicked Wolf, which is a card that would like never sniff modern play, right? But is I think is going to be super powerful in this in this set. I mean, Steel Leaf Champion, maybe people tried it out in Elves, but I think it's a good card in in Pioneer for sure. So you get this kind of interesting, more diverse threat suite because the casting cost um, distribution curve is a little bit more even in Pioneer than it is in Modern. Last thing I would say here is that this is the type of thing that I would really be keeping an eye on with every set that comes out, because I think that over time, this is this will change. And the curve of Pioneer overall, I think inevitably will just get lower um, 
that's my theory anyway, because I think over time, they, they have to print one mana spells that are new and that are powerful for standard. And eventually the best of those will end up making it a pioneer and that curve will gradually drift down. And I think that's how we'll really know as be able to watch as pioneer becomes a more and more powerful format than it is. They could just keep reprinting opt. Think about it. They'll definitely just keep reprinting opt. I actually think you're right that the can there aren't likely to be more cantrips, but I do think that there could be cheap threats, more red cards sure. that kind of fit into oh, oh, oh. this for you. Although you don't, yeah. you don't really love it. You're not a Swiss Spear red player. You're a, uh, you're you're a, a Eidolon player. If it's one man, I send it back. Yeah, exactly. But I thought that that was an interesting kind of comparison between the. Um, just the speed of the formats relative to that and also just the options that we have available to us now. So as much as I love talking about my favorite style of cards, which are lightning bolt effects, Dave, you're going to talk about my second favorite style of cards, which is counterspell effects. Yeah, and I have big news here. I think as far as what we were just talking about a minute ago with super cheap spells, I'm here to tell you that some expensive spells are even okay in um, in Pioneer as well, because I believe that Cancel is a totally okay card to play in Pioneer. What do you think about that? I don't know about that. <laughs> okay. So this, this okay. is this is interesting to me because it, this is I'm curious how you're going to sort of handle the 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 mana disadvantage that may be there in terms of like a three mana counter spell versus a one or two mana spell. So. Here, here's why I think that cancel is potentially okay. Or what I really mean is cards that are like cancel. I've been playing disallow. a bit of yeah, the disallow stuff one. like that. I've been playing a bunch of blue white control over the last week, and it seems like a lot of people are. It's it's clearly becoming. I think you know if we take the top off and remove a bunch of share from Simic, there's a good chance that blue white control is the most popular deck going into the next week at, for a couple of weeks, and we'll see where all the meta evolves from there. But one thing that came to mind as I played it that was super interesting was i have never been more thrilled to draw absorb than i was <laughs> while i while i was playing this deck uh, over the last few days and the 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 fact is there are so many conditional counter spells and so many kind of like smaller forms of interaction that you have to really think about that being able to go in this deck three drop i'm going to hold up an answer to whatever card you play that gains me a little bit of life, so I gain back a little bit of if I lost some advantage early in the game there. And then four drop into Supreme Verdict, which is almost certainly going to clear a bunch of creatures off of your side of the board because most of the decks in Pioneer at this point are creature decks. Um, I think that you, you get a chance to kind of gain back a lot, even though that spell is still expensive. And so, you know, in Modern, where sometimes even a two... two uh, Casting cost counterspell isn't really all that good. You know, talking about something like logic knot, deprive and remand, like people play these all the time, but you often want to really tweak your spell suite to make sure that they're good. It was really interesting to me to think that, hey, all of these control decks are totally fine running a four pack of some three casting cost counterspell. And I think you, the cool thing that's about it is there are tons and tons of those available in Pioneer, and they all have these kind of sweet little benefits that you'd be able to, to tweak to fit your deck. Sure, like you know, what what like the options are what life gain, exiling, dealing damage to your opponent, scrying. Can be countered. Uh, several different ones. Mill 
which is weird if you wanted to mill your opponent for some reason. I think there's three different three CMC counter spells that also mill for once. Um, I think that the the key to it too is to have time to play a couple of niche answers earlier on, on either one, if you have like mystical dispute in your deck when you're kind of like at, in your sideboard or on two, if you have, is it charm or something like that, you know, being able to have this kind of catch all answer at three, it really only works if you have a couple of cheaper forms of interaction earlier in the curve as, as well. So it's great that there are a ton of options to be able to tweak this in that I've even been more of a fan of the three casting cost counters that hard counter something than the ones that you really need to think about, like Mana Leak, what's that one called? Quash, the one that's like two for a two. Quench. For a quench. That's two for a mini Mana Leak. Like, I don't think that any of those Mana Leak style spells are really worth it in the sense that I'd rather just be playing something that absolutely counters something. And that's kind of why I'm not a big fan of something like Supreme Will, which is the card that's an impulse slash Mana Leak, because... I want my my absorb to be good later in the game. I don't want it to just be good at the beginning of the game because sometimes these games do go really long. The only one that I really do like is Mystical Dispute because it costs one sometimes, and that's just kind of gigantic. Oh, yeah, it's huge. But you don't have to use Supreme Will to Mana Leak. You can use it to Impulse. Right, but I think that the trade-off is that you're still running a conditional answer in the space that you could be running something that's an absolute answer at any point in the game. And so I think that I'd rather have just an answer card instead of trying to dig to some other answer or get some value or something like that off of the impulse side later. I'd rather absorb is still good late. You know what I mean? Like it's still fine for me to be able to have that. I mean, the thing that's really important about it is it, it, counters creatures and spells and so you get to just be able to take somebody's giant threat off the board if they try to attack you or try to bring something like that up i had one game that i played against kind of like a bant value deck where i had a handful of absorbs and my opponent was just attacking me they kept trying to cast the front end of lovestruck beast like they cast the front end of lovestruck beast and i would let that resolve and then they would cast lovestruck beast and i would just absorb it and so they ended up with just these tokens and I was just kind of managed to just outpace them with, with that and like Castle Ardenvale. Yeah, because I just kept taking, taking out the threats that they were doing on the backside of the, of the adventures. So be nice. th- this is kind of like a short, short version at the end that kind of runs counter to the idea of, hey, we're all going to be looking at one mana spells. Turns out sometimes three mana spells can be good. Even spells, not creatures. So there you have it, folks. Pioneer. A snowball format where if threats left unanswered, they'll start taking over the game. One CMC spells are crazy important. Removal is particularly situational and sometimes comes at a mana disadvantage. And three CMC counter spells may be actually okay, especially if they gain you life. Obviously, the format's going to continue to evolve as more sets come out, possibly more bans are announced. But for the meantime, this seems to feel like a lay of the land. Everything you need to know about Pioneer as we approach the end of the year is spelled out in this episode. I think everything, every single thing you need to know. (laughs) Yeah, we've absolutely mastered it. We're going to take a quick break now. And when we return, we've got a bit of a listener question lightning round in the wind down. So stay with us. You might hear your question asked, even if you didn't know you asked it.
this week we put out a call for questions and we got a lot of great responses such that we're going to try to answer as many of them as we can in this week's wind down. And to start, we got a question from chemistry guy who asks, how do you think fetchless mana bases are impacting the format? And are any decks being held back specifically due to the initial ban on fetches? I literally covered this when I opened the the main section here. I think not having consistent mana bases with fetching allows a lot of non-basic and more interesting lands to shine. I'm a fan. I think preemptively banning the fetches is probably the best decision they made out of the gate because it just does so many important things that allows delve spells to be powerful but not broken. I think right now the... Deathrite Shaman is, you know, not seen in the format and makes multicolor decks and multicolor piles uh, less consistent and much harder to exist. And I think that's broadly a net positive for the format. I agree that it's a net positive. And I think how I would put it is that it gives Pioneer part of its identity compared to modern, you know, because it's much closer to modern than it is to like Popper or or vintage or legacy. Um, and the fact that the fetches aren't playable, even though they are of this era, makes me feel like that's part of the designing philosophies, obviously. That's why it was announced with the announcement of the format. And the absence of them, in some ways, even makes the format, I think, more accessible to a wider group of players. So while it might not make hardcore modern players happy to not have these cards available to them, I think it's the the needs of the many are going to outweigh the preferences of the few here. I love Star Wars. I also finally think that there's just a good chance that not having fetches will help keep the price of the format down in the long term. And so I think that's a positive too. For sure. And in another mana-based question craig asks how much of an issue is it that enemy colored mana is so much better than allied mana in this format how do you predict the format will change when more ally colored duels are printed into the format and so i guess we should probably quickly explain ally and enemy in case people don't know those terms if you look at the color wheel of white, blue, black, red, green. The ally colors are the ones that are neighbors. So if you consider white to be touching green, then that's a neighbor. And the enemy are the colors that do not touch. So uh, white, as an example, is next to green, it's next to blue. Those are the allied pairs. Uh, White is not touching black or red. And so those are the enemy pairs of white. So in Pioneer, the enemy colors get access to the fast lands and the pain lands. And they all get the shocks. They also get access to creature lands that the allied colors don't have. Yeah, and the creature lands, of course. So there are some lands that I think the allied pairs get that the enemies don't, but those are much less powerful in pioneer than the fast and the pain. And I yeah, think I mean, that, for example, it's the reveal, the reveal lands from, uh, shadows over Innistrad. Yeah. Like game, game trail. Yeah. Game trail and port town and stuff like that. People seem to hate those. We also get some check lands. <laughs> yeah. The check lands, like what uh, glacier fortress or whatever. Is that a check land? No, those are both allied and, and enemy exists because sulfur falls is in the format. Yeah. Good point. 
but you see the that's kind of getting to the difference, right? Where we're talking about things like game trails, we're talking about things like you know sulfur falls, and the enemy colors are not going to choose to run those reveal lands or things like that because they typically just get access to the more easy to run and and less conditional things like the fast lands and the pain lands. So that's just a huge issue to me because I don't think it's designed into the format really, right? Like, so standard formats, the choice of the mana that is accessible to the players is designed into these sets. Like they know what's happening. They're going to be like, okay, we're going to put allied duels in these sets. And then after they rotate out, we can put in some other duels. So they're not going to want, they, if they know that white is really powerful, they're going to maybe want to balance the mana in a certain way. And in Pioneer, it's a really large format. And I think that the lack of allied mana right now is a bug and not a feature that was designed into the format. Totally. I, I would say we're in a similar place to what modern was. Yeah, with the fetches. Yeah, the fetches were only enemy colors because they were in Zendikar and Onslaught was not in modern. So we didn't have access to things like Flooded Strand for a while until they were printed into the set in cons. And that led to a whole other suite of problems, but it still happened. And um, I agree with Shane that I it's definitely a bug and not a feature. It will be fixed someday. Um, I think as someone who's played for a bit, I, I, I feel like the, the effect of it has been a little imperceptible to me in some ways. Cause I, it's hard for me to conceptualize what decks are being held back. Yeah. Like what's missing. It's hard to tell. Well, I, yeah, it's like, I know exactly what cards are missing, but I don't know what decks are missing from the meta as a result of that, because I'm a little unclear on what the payoffs would be if there was a green, white fast land, for example, like, I don't know, would boggles be better or something? You know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what the, um, what the uptick would be. So I think it's hard for us to know what the effects will be ultimately. I think that you can see one of the effects of it in red green, where red green is pretty darn good. Like red green aggro decks are pretty darn good, but they're not consistently showing up and and taking over the format. And I, but I think that if red green had access to fast and pain lands, I think that would be right up there tier one with the rest of the aggressive decks. Honestly, I don't know if I agree with some of the things you guys are saying or even some of the premises of this question. Like the fact that enemy colored mana is so much better than allied mana. I don't know if I agree with that because enemy colored mana still has shocks and it still has check lands. But it doesn't have fast lands. Or pain lands. So what? Those are huge. Those are in every deck. Like those are like the, the difference between game trail and uh, Shivan Reef, for example, is just huge. Yeah. I mean, hey, Stan, I get what you're saying. Like it's kind of what I was saying, though, where it's kind of like I know that these cards are objectively worse like design wise but it's hard for me to tell what effect it it's having right like i i feel like blue white control has suffers like no ill effects of the mana of not having any access to fast lands or or pain lands from it like really after playing the deck for i don't know 10 or 15 matches online it's kind of like the mana's fine it's it's fine every time i play it like it's it seems fine I agree that for a deck like that it makes sense, but I think a deck like Blue White Spirits takes a hit by not having a fast land. But yeah, Blue White Spirits doesn't, I guess. I was going to say Bant does, but that's not as popular as Blue White. No. But I, I think the point remains it's it affects more deck archetypes more some than others. Yeah, I mean my my real stance is that there's just no reason for it to be an inequality. The fact that 
the, the fact that the enemy colors get mana that people would immediately slot into their allied color decks and exchange for game trail is just an inequality that doesn't need to be built into the format and is not really there for a design process or a, res, a, a designed result. It's yeah, just an, it's, it's just, just an imbalance. I think I agree with that. And, you know, those fast lands that we're missing, I think a lot of people have speculated that it is an if not when they get reprinted finally. So maybe this is a hint from from Seattle that uh, they will be in standard one day in the future. This next question comes from Jack from our Slack channel. So what decks do you think need a little push? Maybe one card or a reprint or something to make it to the top tier? Shane, you have a good answer that I think fits in with what we just were talking about a moment ago. I mean, I'm just going to repeat myself. I think that a lot of the that's decks... Exact, that's what we pay you to do. A lot of the decks just have mana issues because of that imbalance that we just talked about. So I think that a lot of decks, given things like fast lands and or pain lands, are going to improve. So I'm specifically thinking about red-green because it's that aggressive deck that if you have a mana stumble when your game trail doesn't have a land to reveal out of your hand, then you're you're stumbling. So I think that you know adding those to a lot of decks is going to push them to make them top tier. I have a couple answers here. I have two. Uh, mono Black Devotion and Mono Blue Devotion. I think both are on the cusp. Now Mono Black is probably much higher and powerful and is likely positioned to be uh, pretty good right now, but I think there's a chance that if there's another great blue devotion payoff in the new Theros set, it could push its way up into the top of the metagame, even in Pioneer, pretty easily. So this isn't really a specific deck, but it's really a category deck, and I wish there was more combo in the format. I think more combo might make cards like Thoughtseize a little more defendable, might make Duress a little better, and it seems like that's a pillar of magic that's a little absent in Pioneer. Uh, there was a very powerful combo deck on day one that had to get kicked out because the Sahili cat was too oppressive. But that doesn't mean that Kethis combo might not deserve a little bit of push or maybe Aetherworks Marvel. So I don't have a specific card to name, just that I'd love some more support for combo strategies. I think that a certain type of mid-range deck needs a push. There's not really consistent, like, good mana rocks right now. And like, there's not really good ways to like set up bigger plays. And Wily Goblin ain't it, quite frankly. And like, I've wanted to like it. It's a goblin. I like that it has two pips for whatever reason. But I think that we could have some more interesting, grindy value based games if Glory Baron comes out on turn four versus turn five. And a cool mana rock could do that. And Hedron Archive is not it either. Hedron Archive is not. And neither is Dragon's Horde, a deck that I, a card that I've tried in so many formats, in so many ways. Haven't bought a foil yet, so hey. Aren't the red-green, like, stompy lists using Llanowar Elves to get out fast Glorybringers? Yeah, absolutely. I I just don't want to have to play green, as I guess what I'm saying. Like, I I, I would like a a mana rock or a similar effect that's not a mana dork specifically. Yeah, and also rocks just have different resiliency than dorks do. It's like high school all over again. I was just going to say that. (laughs) Nailed it, Stan. Thank you all for submitting the great questions. We're sorry to those that we couldn't get to today. But as always, if you'd like to submit questions to us, we're always on the hunt for great topics for Wind Down. Who knows? We might even turn it into a dive down. But for now, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. 
Sometimes we talk about pioneer. Sometimes we talk about modern. If I get my way, one day we'll talk about historic. If you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. Great way to help us find new listeners, get our podcast some more fans. Some great ways to submit questions to the podcast include tweeting at us. We're on Twitter, at The Dive Down, all one word. You can also email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. We're joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel. We love interacting with our patrons, whose identities we will conceal until they submit questions to the show. Also, shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the Dive Down. You can sign up for Manatraders using the promo code the Dive Down, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and sell your Oko! Oh